This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latte from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and the New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. The daughter of eccentric aristocrats marries a Wall Street tycoon during the Roaring Twenties. It all sounds like a book that F. Scott Fitzgerald might have written or maybe... Edith Wharton, something in the vicinity of The Great Gatsby or The House of Mirth. But Trust by Hernan Diaz is very much of our time. It's a novel told by four different narrators who give conflicting accounts of the marital life of a fictional couple and also of the tycoon's gross misdeeds and his role in the crash of 1929. And while a book like Gatsby or The House of Mirth tends to skirt around the question of how the rich actually make their money, Hernan Diaz puts that question at the very heart of trust. He's concerned with finance capitalism and how it works and what's ignored along the way. The book received the Pulitzer Prize this year, and I asked Hernan Diaz about the title Trust. I I wanted something that was performing what the book was also doing and saying. Um, So trust uh, has the value of, of having sort of all these semantic strata. You know, it's it's a highly layered word. And it addresses the financial aspect of the novel, but also what to me, above the, the issue of capital in the novel, it speaks to uh, the issue of confidence. The novel, Trust, is sort of a, a, a gentle invitation to, to the reader hmm. to, to, to question uh, uh, these uh, these tacit agreements that we all enter into every time we read a text. And this is why we have four voices. As I mentioned, trust isn't one linear story. It's told in four parts. One part is a work of fiction, a book within a book. And there are memoirs and a personal diary by other characters. Each part reveals more and more about the mysterious financier, Andrew Bevel, and his financial dealings. What I was interested in in the book, and this is also why I chose finance capital over, uh, you know, the manufacturing of concrete goods or providing, you know, tangible services. Uh, I wanted a realm of pure, absolute abstraction, you know. Um, 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 in the book, at, at one point, you know, uh, 
someone speaks of the incestuous genealogies of capital, you know, capital begetting capital, begetting capital, and this removal. I think that leads eventually to labor, of course. But but in that dizzyingly high spheres of finance, every human trace of labor has been erased. I was very interested in that. And also that high degree of, of abstraction allowed me to think of these financiers in my book a little bit, and I don't mean this as a redeeming quality at all, but a little bit as esthetes or, you know, pure artists who are all about the process and not about the result. That's fascinating because in the first section, I get that entirely, that his engagement with money is as – it's it's not – the luxury part of it, the reward doesn't seem to mean anything to him. It's the game itself. Absolutely. You know, that, that, that's, that's what I was going for. Uh, just to show, to show money purely as an abstraction and not as a means to an end. If asked, Benjamin would probably have found it hard to explain what drew him to the world of finance. It was the complexity of it, yes, but also the fact that he viewed capital as an antiseptically living thing. It moves, eats, grows, breeds, falls ill, and may die. But it is clean. This became clearer to him in time. The larger the operation, the further removed he was from its concrete details. There was no need for him to touch a single banknote or engage with the things and people his transaction affected. All he had to do was think, speak, and perhaps write. The, the, the core of the book takes place in the late 30s, so I thought I, I would read everything that would have been accessible up to that point. So I went from Benjamin Franklin to Herbert Hoover. That, mm-hmm. that, that was the time span, and I read everything I could find over, over, over those uh, couple of centuries. So and, you're reading about the robber barons, you're reading about... Yes. The major industrialists and financiers and bankers. I'm reading them as much as I can. So I also know that you come from a background. Your parents were um, committed leftists, I think is the phrase, in the New York Times book review. (laughs) (laughs) That's the shorthand. Really? Okay. Trotskyist even. Yes. How much much of of those politics did did you inherit and make your own and bring to the book? Um, None is the answer. I mean, uh, um, the... My father, I'm reluctant to say this sort of uh, uh, publicly, but my my father uh, and uh, uh, my father's ghost haunts uh, a great part of this book. There is a there is a a character who is an, an Italian anarchist who is very dogmatic, very unbending, uh, in, inflexible, and uh, and uh, you know it, it was a, a ciphered way for me to 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 deal with that legacy from from my father, who, whom I loved very much, and. Uh, he died some seven years, seven eight years ago. But, um, and he also moved away from 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 that sort of political paradigm. Yeah, after, this is the character after of the Partenza. 70s. That's right. Yeah. 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 Perhaps encouraged by the wine, my father was particularly fiery that afternoon. The time has come for action. Mussolini crushing Italy under his boot, Franco massacring Spain, Stalin murdering his own with his purges, Hitler getting ready to devour Europe. Yes, the time has come for action. He looked out the window. How did we get here? How? 
you, you have four voices in this novel. The reader, people listening should know that it, it's, it's not like The Great Gatsby. It's not in just the voice of Tom. It is, um, it keeps, sh- you shift point of view, you shift time and place. It's, it's extraordinarily clever, but the cleverness should not uh, be an anti-endorsement. It's, it's, it's part of the immense appeal of the book. Um, how is that architecture built and toward what end? Um, I was hoping it wouldn't be a gimmick or a mere sort of... Uh, if it uh, had been, I would have thrown it against the wall and moved on to the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I probably would have given yeah. up yeah. myself too as, 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 as a writer yeah. because I'm, I'm not interested sort of in... It's, in, it's in, a deep part of the pleasure of the book. I, oh, thank you. Um, I, as I was saying before, uh, I, I thought that the best way and the most fun way for the readers, hopefully... To, to try to uh, interrogate uh, the ways in which we read would be for me to confront them with different texts in different voices, in different genres, written in different periods of time, and, and build a certain trust, forgive me, you know, uh, uh, for each one of these four voices, and then swiftly proceed to demolish it and then rebuild it for the next sec- section that also interrogates uh, uh, the, the, the preceding one. Um, in other words, in, instead of merely presenting the issue of voice in a monographical way within the novel, why not enact it formally and have it be an experience in, you know, in reading the text? I'm talking with Hernan Diaz about his novel, Trust. We'll continue in a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan. A hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Hi, I'm Adam Howard, a senior producer for the Radio Hour, and I have a quick favor to ask of you. This program has been nominated for a relatively new award in our industry, the Signal Award, which recognizes the best podcasts in the country. The twist is that you have a say in whether we win. 
So if you enjoy this program, show your love by logging on to vote.signalaward.com. You'll have to click a few times to get to the news and politics category, and that's where you'll find us. The window to vote is really short, so do it now if you can. We really appreciate it. Now, back to the show. Of these main characters, um, did you find them all equally enjoyable to write about, or is enjoyment just not a factor in the hard work of writing? Enjoyment is a big factor for me. I don't buy into the whole Dostoevsky notion that one should be, you know, in some kind of... You're not sweating uh, blood at the desk. I'm not. I mean, uh, life is too short. There are other things <laughs> to do. If you don't enjoy writing, like, what's the point? I had read somewhere that the two writers that, that interested you in, in, in driving that forward were Lillian Ross, yes. a, a writer for The New Yorker. That's right. Um, who kind of invented the celebrity profile with her profile of Hemingway many, many years ago. And Joan Didion, quite a different writer, whose sentences fall on the page like one razor blade after another. Quite a very different voice. Yeah, Didion was was a massive presence there. And I I realized, here's, here's a little anecdote. You know, all voices had to be very different. And I didn't want to bribe the the reader with little kind of tchotchkes and mannerisms that that's the easy way to do it i didn't want to resort to different fonts or any kind of design mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> distinction between it had to be in a, in a subtle way in language and my heart sank when i realized uh, uh, editing the third version that the use of, of commas in certain subordinate uh, clauses was the same for everyone so i i read I reread Didion's uh, White Album, which is my favorite book of hers, and marked up all of the commas in it, and then proceeded to steal it. <laughs> and it was such a disaster, David. It was it, it sucked so hard. It it didn't work at all. And um, but but that failed experiment that consumed so much of my time learned me to 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 punctuate and to use commas, famously the hardest punctuation mark there is, in in a totally new way. Hernan, I've got to confess, I, I didn't know your books and I didn't know your name before, before reading Trust anyway. So you've just turned 50, and I hope you'll forgive the impolite question. Were you a kind of late starter to fiction? Can you tell me your story of getting started as a writer of novels and stories? I always knew I wanted to be a writer, uh, even before I learned how to write. I, <laughs> I would show my mother doodles uh, as my latest sort of story. Um and I've always been doing things around book books. I'm an academic. I worked as a critic, uh, and of course, writing fiction all along, um, for the most part in English. And uh, for the longest time, well over a decade, I was unable to place my work. Uh, it was turned down by by magazines, by collections, uh, uh, short story collections. I had novels that uh, I couldn't place either, turned down by editors and including agents. This, including this magazine, I gather. In- including this magazine. Okay, uh, our loss. Yes. Our loss. Yes. These things happen. With, with, with perfect consistency. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and for how long? When, when did you start writing fiction and submitting them to editors? Um, I, w- I would say, you know, uh, in the early 2000s. This is all I wanted to do, despite the world telling me pl- to please stop, you know. 
And I was doing it in a void without any kind of objective um, legitimation from, from, from the world. You know, In the Distance is my first published novel, but the, there's a whole invisible body of, of, of work, including novels that, you know, I probably won't publish now because I'm, I'm a different writer. So I wouldn't say I'm a late bloomer. I just was very late to be published. Was the world too hard on you? In other words, was the, was the world wrong? Um, I don't want to take out my tiny little violin here and sort of um, uh, say how the world wronged me in any way. What I, what I will say is, I am the same writer now uh, that I was that I was then. Of course, there has been growth, evolution, transformations, uh, uh, metamorphoses. But I'm not going to lie; there, there is a sense of indication because I've been I've been consistent. I didn't change. I didn't change the course. Is what I'm trying to say. You were born in Argentina spent time in Sweden and back to Argentina. And it wasn't until, you know, you were a grown man that you moved to the English-speaking realm. T- tell me about your your history of your language and how it works. In other words, I assume Spanish is your first language. Hmm. How quickly were you fluent in English? I... I I don't know. I, you know, I Spanish is my mother tongue. Is what we spoke at home uh, always, still. Uh, and then we moved to Sweden, and, and Swedish became my social tongue. And then we moved back to Argentina, and I feel that and Swedish was taken away from me. You know, we we didn't speak it at home anymore. Did you lose it? No, I, I speak it without a trace of an accent, huh. but with the vocabulary of a ten-year-old. And and most exchanges with with strangers begin with, I have to explain this to you, you know, <laughs> so, so they know. And then how does English enter your life? Right. And so, ear? Yeah. So in my early teens, I think I must have been 14, 15, English came to me through Borges, who is a very important writer to me and, and a big Anglophile. And he introduced me to the Anglo-American canon. And, um, and I started reading, uh, you know, Stevenson, Whitman, uh, Hawthorne, Emerson, uh, and and so on and so forth. Uh, thanks, thanks to him. Uh, but, but why? Why did you make the decision to write trust in English? Your fiction in English. Well, I wrote trust in English uh, in, in the distance. All my stories and all those unpublished uh, texts. So you know. Uh, English, aside from the big events in my family and having a family, you know, becoming a parent and and, and meeting my wife, I think um, English was the biggest event that happened to me in my life, that encounter, I, to the extent that I shaped my life around it. I moved to England, then to the United States, to live in English. And now, it's it's very hard to explain love, and and that's what I feel for the English language. I can rationalize it. I can give you a little listicle, if you want, of reasons why I mm-hmm. why it speaks to me and why I speak through it. Um, I, I love its lexical uh, wealth and generosity. Its inclusiveness. You know, uh, uh, Romance languages are you know expel of words from from their dictionaries and How do you English. Mean? Um, they're they're very conservative. It, 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 Spanish is conservative. I think I think French is as well. Italian might be as well. Yeah, uh, you know you have you have the 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 the, the academia, the, the the Royal Academy in in in, in Spanish, and uh, uh, you know. Uh, but they, isn't Spanish full of inclusiveness and uh, geography and slang and all kinds of flexibility? Uh, the way English is. Oh, absolutely. No, I'm I'm just talking institutionally. I, I, 
and I'm not saying that one language, I want to make this abundantly clear, I am uh, most emphatically not saying that one language is richer than the other. I was just merely talking about um, uh, 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 the academy and institutional policy regarding language. And I feel English is, without a question, as a, as a language, more inclusive than, than other languages. Hernan, the thing that you care about so intensely, the creation of these texts and the reading of these texts, I'm holding your book up, it it means everything to you, and yet it it too exists in an economy. It exists in what we now call endlessly the attention economy that competes against, I'm now picking up my phone, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and all the other million things that it competes against. And a lot of literary writers... um are concerned with, and you hear this complaint all the time, that this is becoming, it always was a minority obsession, but it's it's now becoming even more so. Even as it becomes a richer, more diverse world of voices being published, hmm. the business of setting aside two hours in an evening of concentrated attention on an enigmatic text gets harder and harder. I know, and it, it breaks my heart because precisely what I like about the novel as a forum, another thing that I like, is that it enables us to experience time in a totally different way, the way it compresses and dilates time, the time within the text and the time passing for us as readers and how those two are in conversation or tension is, pu- is a beautiful thing to me, but I understand it's antagonistic to the way we live now. Um, but perhaps we should put this in historical perspective. I mean, universal literacy is a very new thing, historically speaking. It's it's hardly, you know, I don't have the, the, the years here, but wouldn't you say it's around a century long, you know? Um, in 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 the West, uh, which is the world, the, the place that I, that I know a little bit of, and before then, uh, the written words circulated in a very limited way, uh, and and of course was uh, that was a that was a power move that goes without saying. So I think this period where where literature reigned in this way and was our main way of interacting with meaning uh, might be at an end and this doesn't make me happy at all i'm i'm just i'm just taking a step back and and looking at I think it the, might be at an end you do i'm asking you it's it's definitely changing uh, our experience with text how we navigate text uh, you know words written words has changed already add to that the fact that you know we are increasingly communicating in nonverbal ways, and very effectively so. And I don't want to be conservative or, or sort of a, an old curmudgeon. I, I think it will be very interesting and it will be exciting, but it probably won't be for me. Hernandez, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, David. This has been such a joy. Trust is the second novel by Hernan Diaz, and it won the Pulitzer Prize this year. I'm David Remnick, and that's the New Yorker Radio Hour for today. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards. 
This episode was produced by Max Balton, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandro Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.